Well, good morning, church. I actually want to introduce our speaker for this morning, who really, for many of you, really needs no introduction. You've heard from Pastor Corey Ishida preach from this pulpit many times here. Um, but this will be his first time since the transition um, back in July. And so some of you are newer to the church, and maybe you've never heard from him yet. And I, I just really, to be honest, um, I want to give honor where honor is due and when honor is due. And um, it's so important that we do that often. And uh, Pastor Corey, for over 40 years, pastored Evergreen Baptist Church, which many would say is, has been one of the most influential churches in our region. And so from afar, I've always seen him as just a leader, um, a man of wisdom, a pastor to pastors. I've really admired how God has used him. And um, it's just amazing to me that now we get to experience that up close and personal as a church, um, as our brother in Christ, also as a pastor to us. Um, and so we are so blessed to have him and his wife, Rain, and their family here at the church. Rain um, and Corey have also been mentors to, to my wife and, and me. They've poured into us as a couple. Um, but also, I want you to know this. Not only are you going to experience his leadership today from the pulpit as he preaches the word, but uh, I, I want you to know that he's played an instrumental role, and I believe this is God's sovereignty, um, in just helping our church through this transition. He's been a voice of leadership and a voice of a wisdom for Pastor Gary, for myself, and really helping us, having gone through it himself just a few years ago. And so God used his experience and his, um, his, his wisdom from that to really pour into South Bay Community Church. And so with that, would, would you please help me give a really, really warm South Bay welcome to honor Pastor Corey as he comes and brings the word to us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Greg, for those kind words. You know, my, my wife and I, we've been worshiping here since the beginning of 2020. And then we had that stretch of the pandemic, and, uh, but we still felt so very warmly welcomed, especially by Pastor Gary at the time and Pastor Greg. Uh, Greg and I met each other uh, when we spoke together at a camp. And he was, uh, I think he was the morning speaker and I was the evening speaker. We got to know him and his family and just love them and just the way in which they love the Lord and serve him. My wife and I, we've made the well our home at 11 o'clock. So we don't get to see many of you because this is your uh, worship community. And our worship community is the well. And it is forming into a community. And those of you who are still praying about whether or not to worship at the well, you may want to prayerfully continue to uh, pray about it as we, uh, we form that community over there. And you know how you can tell when a community is starting at a particular location? People sit in the same place every week. How many of you are sitting in the same place you sit week after week after week? That's why you know this is your uh, community of worship. So really love it over there. <clears throat> now I'd like to mention a couple of things before getting into the message this morning. Uh, first of all, uh, this is Pastor Appreciation Month. Now I'm not one of the pastors of, of uh, this particular, of, of SPCC. I'm actually a member like the rest of you. But we do have a staff that is wonderful and administers to us. So they self-sacrifice and, and uh, serve the Lord in, in wondrous ways. And so this is a month that has been designated for all churches to be Pastor Appreciation Month. And so we're taking up a love offering for our pastors, which we can do via the normal channels of giving. 
and it's a time to appreciate them. Now, we do appreciate our pastors the other 11 months, right? But in particular, we want to show what the Bible says, give them double honor, as the Bible uh, says. <clears throat> and so this is our way of giving double honor to our pastors. And so I went on the link actually last night, and it's really easy. You, know, you click on it and say appreciation offering, uh, pastor's appreciation, and I clicked, and my wife and I gave last night. So it's a, it's, a, it's a joy to do that. We have the remainder of the month to do so. The second thing is people have asked us how to pray for Israel and what's going on there. And I have a good friend who's a, a messianic shepherd in, the, in Haifa, Israel. He's actually a third-generation Japanese-American who is now an Israeli citizen. His name is Peter Sukihira, and this is his picture. Can't tell, but Peter and I are about the same age. He didn't have any gray hair. <laughs> the Lord's blessing upon him. So I reached out to Peter and I asked him how we could pray for them. And he sent back a prayer list of things that we could be praying for here in America for the people of Israel. In fact, for the entire area. I mean, what Peter desires are wrong with his messianic fellowship. And by the way, Christians in uh, Israel are called uh, messianic Jews, not Christians. But they are Christians. They believe in Jesus Christ that he rose from the grave, that he is God's son, and they believe in the word of God. So they are Christians, but they're termed Messianic Jews. And so uh, he, along with all the other Messianic Jews, really want peace in the region where people, Palestinians and Israelis alike, can live in peace to love one another and form a, a, a community of people who love one another. But this is the prayer request that Peter sent uh, to me, and I'd like to put it up on the screen for you. Please pray for the political and military leaders of Israel to have wisdom and courage in this crisis, to cooperate with each other and make good decisions for the future of the nation. Please pray for divine protection upon all Israeli soldiers. There are several hundred believing Messianic young people in the army serving in various units. Already reports of young believer, believing soldiers killed in action have been received. Please pray for the safety and freedom of the 150 Israeli hostages taken into Gaza. Please pray for the people of Israel and the Prince and the people of Gaza for revelation of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. That's really the solution that he's praying for, that everyone, Palestinians and Israelis alike, will come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Please pray that those leaders in Gaza, Lebanon, uh, Iran, Syria, and elsewhere who dream about the annihilation of Israel will have their plans disrupted and their dark purposes confounded by the Lord. You know, sometimes the Lord confounds enemies uh, where, without bloodshed whatsoever. And that's really what we should hope for. Please pray for the release of angelic protection over our borders, sons and daughters, homes and congregations. So that's the prayer request of Peter uh, who's on the ground there in Israel. And perhaps this can help guide us in prayer. But let's take a moment and pause and pray at this moment in time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are watching over Peter and his family and his messianic fellowship. And Lord, we pray for peace in Israel. We pray for no more bloodshed. We pray, Lord, that both sides can get along together and live peaceably. Lord, there are so many Palestinians who want just that. And so, Lord, we pray for that. We pray that the Prince of Peace will rule in the entire land of Israel and surrounding nations and neighborhoods. Thank you, Father. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, let's begin this morning's message where Todd left off five weeks ago. 
So we're in a series in Ephesians. Todd left off on uh, verse 24 of Ephesians 4, and I'm going to pick up from that point in time. So let me read Ephesians 4:24, where Todd uh, left off five weeks ago. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. So I entitled today's message as Rags to Riches because the verses we're going to be looking at is all about going from rags to riches. Now the idiom rags to riches means the kind of clothing. It's a metaphor for the kind of clothing that people who are in extreme poverty wear and then the type of clothing or riches they experience when they make the journey from rags to riches. It's the condition of wealth. Uh, being described as riches from a state of poverty. The idea that we go from rags to riches is found in the scriptures, both in Ephesians and in Colossians. It's the language of the Apostle Paul when he says we're supposed to rid ourselves of certain raggedy clothes and put on the riches of heaven. Now, the life of Andrew Carnegie, he's an American from way back yonder, uh, is a classic story of the rise from rags to riches. And the phrase is often referred to in terms of Andrew Carnegie, and we'll refer to him later on in the message. So five weeks ago, Todd gave a message on Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, and he entitled it, Live Like You Know Christ. He could have entitled it, Dress As Though You Know Christ. And he shared with us that when he's at home, even preparing a message, he likes to dress comfy. Remember that? And comfy to him meant he wore this raggedy uh, tank top, which was torn on the side, and uh, according to Nicole, his wife, had holes all over it. And uh, he, he shared that, that, that putting on, taking off the odors, like taking off his raggedy tank top and putting on something more decent, especially in the eyes of Nicole. So this is what his raggedy, sweat, uh, raggedy shirt looked like. You can't see the holes in it, but apparently there are holes in it. But you can see where it's ripped down the side. And he's really, he keeps wearing it. He says he, it's hard for him to discard it. Because really what he should be doing with this, this piece of clothing is probably washing cards with it. Right. But he has a hard time because it's so comfy. And that's the way it is with sin in our lives. We get comfortable with it. And so it's hard to take that off and put on the clothing that God wants us to wear in its place. So one of the things that he mentioned was that Nicole wants him to wear something a little bit nicer when he carries and especially feeds their new daughter, Layla. So Todd, being a loving husband, does just that. And here's a picture of Todd with his daughter, Layla. Isn't she cute? Uh, Nicole thinks he's cute too. So. <laughs> so the idea is we are supposed to dress according to who we are and what we're going to be doing, how we're going to live our lives. Now, what is this particular guy dressed to do? He is definitely not dressed to play volleyball. Now, I coach volleyball. Some of our, my team members, the boys that I coach, are in the congregation today uh, worshiping with us. But he's not dressed to play football. He's dressed to play football, not volleyball. You couldn't play volleyball in that uniform. But he, the football player, is dressed according to the, what he is going to be doing. Now, notice the, uh, what it says in the front of his jersey, besides the number. It says West. He's a football player from West High. We have one particular preacher here 
who occasionally mentions West High. It's West Torrance High, right? And that's where he went to school. And he doesn't call it West High. What does he call it? Best High. Best High. And this is a football player from Best High. You can put the picture back up. Now, our, our, our uh, pastor probably isn't referring to the football team because as of Friday, they were one in seven. <laughs> I know what that feels like because I went to UCLA. All right. Sometimes that's our record. But it doesn't really matter, does it? Because Best High produces some of the best pastors in Torrance. Amen? Amen. So what we're going to be looking at uh, today is wearing the appropriate clothing of one who follows Christ and discarding the clothing that is not appropriate. We're going to take off the clothing of sin and put on the clothing of righteousness or the behavior that does honor to the master designer of our clothing. Now, let me give you a reminder here. In using the metaphor, both Todd and Pastor Greg taught us very clearly that the change is really internal. See, garments, you think of something external, but really what Paul is talking about is an internal change that reflects in what we wear on the outside. So it's not just external, it's internal. And the external is the expression of what is going on on the inside. And when the inside matches the outside, that's what we call integrity. Integrity is when your private life matches your public life. Right? Integrity is when your character matches your reputation. And that's what Paul is striving after as he pens the words in this letter to the Ephesians. Okay, let's begin the message proper. First of all, we take off lies and we put on the truth. We take off lies and we put on the truth, going from rags to riches. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, lay aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. See, we're supposed to take off the clothing of deception and put on the garments of truthfulness. Lies are rampant in our society today. Living by lies or according to lies is rampant in our society. But it makes sense according to what Paul wrote in, in Romans. In Romans 1.25, he said, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather, a creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. Paul said that in his letter to the Romans. People in the world, we're constantly exchanging God's truth for a lie, and then we live according to the lie. Before becoming the pastor at Evergreen, I was worked as a pharmaceutical sales representative. And our district manager hired this particular rep that no one in the district really liked very much. Right? He was a kind of a different sort of guy. And so I tried to reach out to him to kind of befriend him, especially when we had corporate meetings. And then he said to me that, I had ulterior intentions and motives, and he's have to try to figure me out, you know. And so I thought, well, I'm just trying to be your friend, trying to make you feel comfortable. But what happened was we were at a table, and he was sitting there. He left, and somebody took their place, and nobody told them that that was his seat. But I told when he came back, I said, you know, that's really so-and-so's seat. And he got upset at me for doing that, all right. 
He was there one day and gone a month later. They let him go because he lied on his resume. And that was just cause. Now, back in the day, you didn't have internet. So it was really hard to check up, but they checked up on him. Today, you think nobody would lie on their resume, correct? Because you can Google people. Right? According to a recent survey by LinkedIn, 72% of job applicants have lied on their resume. Three out of four. According to CNBC.com, over 55% of people admit to lying on their resume at least once. So that's at least half the people. Here are eight, the eight most common lies in job resumes, according to CNBC. Previous work experience, 55.4. Lie about it. Skills, 43.1%. College degree or equivalent, 41%. Personal details such as age, location, or name, 39.5%. High school details, 39.2%. Salary information, 33.6%. Job-specific software and or equipment skills, 33.5%. Employer references, 21%. Uh, to me, when I read that, that's kind of astounding. Because people call up your references, don't they? Paul wants us to do, and what the Lord substantiates through Paul is that we are to take off falsehood and put on the truth. And there's only one place to find the truth, and that's in the Word of God. So we always compare it against the Word of God. Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. John 17, 17. Let me ask you a question. Is there a falsehood in your life? Is there a falsehood or a lie that has been perpetuated through your life. Maybe you said you did something when you really didn't. Now everybody believes that you did it, and so you have to perpetuate the lie. Is there a lie? Is your past not exactly what you represent it to be in the present? And so you have to live that particular lie or the consequences of that lie. God wants us to take off falsehood and put on the truth, no matter the expense. Now let me give you a caution here. If you have a major falsehood in your life and you would like to confess that to the people you know, especially your loved one, but it's a big lie, seek out godly counsel first to guide you through that process. The Bible says on a host of counselors, there is victory. Right? It's, it could be a, a, at a great cost that you reveal it, but the Lord, we know that the Lord wants us to put aside falsehood and to tell the truth. When I was a youth director, that's, what, that's the position Todd has. When I was a youth director of, of a church, my wife's church that you grew up in, we had a, a young girl in a high school group, and every once in a while we'd take her home and drop her off at home after the youth group meeting. And I asked her one time, can we go in and meet your parents? I wanted to meet her dad. And she said, no, no, not a good idea. And then we just drop her off. And this happened repeatedly. Finally, I said, why is it that you don't want us to meet your dad? Well, he, she said, well, he's an abusive alcoholic, and I have no idea what he's going to do when you meet him. So we prayed. We started praying for Dad diligently. They, the children, we have three kids, witnessed to them from, in our youth group. And then eventually I got a chance to share with him, and he accepted Jesus as his Savior and Lord. Sometime later, he calls me up and says, uh, at the time I was now the pastor of Evergreen, he said, uh, Pastor Corey, um, I think God's calling me into the ministry. 
And I said, well, praise the Lord. That's wonderful. And I could, I'll do whatever I can to help you in that journey. And then he said, you know, but there's one thing. When I was a young man living in the South, I got into an altercation with somebody I didn't know, and I killed him. So I, I murdered somebody. And I fled the state and came to California to start a new life. But all this time knowing that I had murdered somebody early in my life. And I actually think this is part of the reason why he became an alcoholic, living with the specter of that hanging over his life. And so he asked me, what should I do? Now let's pause a moment. If you were me, what would you tell him? What would you tell him? Well, I know what the Bible says. You were supposed to take off falsehood and put on the truth. And there was no way he could pastor with that lie hanging over his head and in his life. And so with all the gumption I could, I could muster up, I shared to him, you know, the word of God says we're supposed to put aside falsehood. We're supposed to be honest and truthful. And so I think before you go into ministry, he needs to confess to the killing. That's exactly what he did. He called up the authorities in the town, told them the time, the date, the circumstances, what transpired on that day, and they said, I guess they said thank you. I don't know what they would say. I didn't ask them. So they looked up as best they could all that information, and they got back to them and said, you know, we have no record of anybody dying on that date or in a window around that date. So as far as we're concerned, nothing happened, and you're free. Right? Isn't there a verse in the Bible somewhere that says the truth will set you free? Which is exactly what happened in his life. He then went on to be a pastor and served the Lord faithfully until his death, going home to heaven. But that's exactly what God wants us to do, to take off falsehood and put on the truth going from rags to riches. His life was never the same once he confessed to what he thought he did. So we take off lies and put on the truth. Secondly, we take off anger and put on wholesome words going from rags to riches. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now we're going to skip down to verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Let's begin with the beginning of, that, of, that, of those verses. The Bible says, be angry, but do not sin. Did you know anger is not a sin? It's a human emotion. Something happens, it upsets us, and we get angry. The anger is not sin. What you do with the anger can become sin. James says in James 1.19, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If anger were sin, then James is telling us, be slow to sin. That's not what he's saying. Anger is not a sin. It's what we do with the anger. And so we're supposed to take off anger that leads to sin and put on something else. And I'm proposing verse 29 is one of the things we can put on. 
Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, which means to build up, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Unwholesome words tear down. Unwholesome words are, are toxic to mental health and emotional health. Wholesome words build up and edify. They help people. I had two friends when I was a young adult, and they're still, they were my friends throughout life. But I fellowship with them a lot early in my 20s and 30s. And they had common issues in life, difficulties in life. And then they both told me a story separately. They said they both had older brothers who died prematurely. One was in the military, he was in his early 20s, the other I think was in high school. But they both had an older brother that passed away. Their mothers, independent of each other of course, their mothers every once in a while would get really upset with them. And this is what she said to them. The wrong son died. Isn't that a horrible thing to hear? I think that particular message from their mothers played on a continuous loop in their minds and in their hearts and really harmed them as they developed into manhood. We're supposed to take off anger that leads to toxic words. We're supposed to take off anger that leads to things that are, that are unwholesome. We have a tradition in our family. I've shared this before in another message. But on birthdays, we gather around the birthday person and when they, they sit there on the couch or wherever we happen to be around the dinner table and we speak words of affirmation into their life why and how they bless us. And everybody goes around the room. This started when the kids were small, like four or five years old. And then at that point in time, it's pretty simplistic. And I, I love mommy because she cooks my favorite food. Then as they grow older, it becomes deeper and wider, the sharing, as they share words of affirmation into the life of a family member. Now, why is this important? We live a lot of life with our family, don't we? We're around them a lot, especially in the informative years. And a lot of times, life, which is very messy, leads words to be spoken that are unkind. And that happens in the family context. The other thing that happens in families is parents. One of the ways in which they try to build up their child is by speaking all the things that they do wrong into their life. So they hear a lot of criticisms. And that's the way kids are raised. Now what does the Bible teach? The Bible says, train up a child in the way he or she should go and he will not depart from it. When he grows old, he will not depart from it. It doesn't say, train up a child in the things that they should not do. But it's the things that they should do. And more and more we speak into the lives of kids the things that they shouldn't be doing when really we should be commending them for the things they do right and training them the things that they should be doing. And so harsh words are sometimes spoken or remembered. And what the Lord wants is he wants those words replaced by words that edify and give grace to the one who hears. So you may want to start this, and it's hard at the front end. On somebody's birthday, gather around them and just affirm them. Tell them why and how they bless you. And it's really hard to start. And if it's hard to start, 
it probably means that words of affirmation aren't spoken in your family that much. It's a good place to start. So we take off lies and put on the truth. We take off anger and put on wholesome words. Thirdly, we take off thievery and put on honest labor. We take off thievery or stealing and put on honest labor. We go from rags to riches. See, we take off the clothing of larceny and put on the garments of honesty. I'm not going to talk too much about labor, but honesty. God wants us to be honest. Verse 28 says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. See, the emphasis here is on honesty. And it happens to be labor, but honesty, taking off the rags of thievery and putting on the clothing of honesty. Now, Proverbs speaks a lot about businesses and labor practices, and we'll leave out the Proverbs. The idea is take off stealing and put on honesty. Now, in the discussion questions that are created for the life groups, I have a question and it is something to this effect. In the world today, there's a lot of thievery that goes on that's acceptable. Name some of them. What are some of the common ways we steal and aren't even aware of it sometimes? Think and meditate upon that. Maybe at work, you take things home that you really shouldn't. That's actually thievery. When I was in college, I worked at our family store, all right? And at the time, I was dating my wife, Rain. And one particular weekend, I wanted to take her out to a nice dinner. But I wasn't sure if I had enough capital to do that. Now, back when we were dating, we didn't use credit cards, right? We used, everything was cash and carry back then. And um, so, because I wasn't sure, while I was working at the store, I took $40 out of the cash register with the intention of paying it back. So basically, I stole $40. Temporary stealing. That's how you rationalize it. So we went out, had a nice time at a restaurant. By the way, $40 bought a lot back then, right? So then, uh, then I forgot about it. Then before too long, I didn't work there anymore. I became a pastor <laughs> who's guilty of thievery. All right, so one day, while I was pastoring at Evergreen, I was preaching that Sunday. On a Thursday, I think it was Thursday, I, I was, attended a seminar, and the lesson was on stealing and restitution. If you have stolen, you must go and confess to the person you stole from and make restitution mean you pay back what you stole. I go, and then, as the Lord would have it, he reminded me of the $40. I had forgotten about it. And as I was listening to that message out of Ephesians chapter 4, I thought, oh, man, I stole money from my auntie. And I was, I was her favorite, favorite nephew because her, she was supposed to have a son, but he, he died at birth, and he was my age. So I was her favorite nephew. I was favored amongst all the cousins by her, and here I stole money from her. So Saturday night, as I'm getting ready to preach the next day, I had this heavy conviction, kind of a heavy conviction. I need to go confess to my aunt and pay her back $40 before I preach the next morning. So my conscience would be clear. And uh, so the problem was I had to find $40. 
Well, you know how, you kind of time you scrape around for money back in the day? Yeah, you know, looking for coins. You know, you go into the sofa and look if anybody dropped coins in there. And I came up with $46.42. And I'll, for a while there, I was thinking about maybe going into my children's piggy banks. But then I'd be stealing again, you know. I probably wouldn't honor the Lord whatsoever. I'd be putting on rags again. So then I jumped into the car. I told my wife I needed to go tell Auntie what I did, confess to her, ask for forgiveness, and make restitution. So I get in my car, and I'm driving over, and I notice the gas gauge is near empty. <laughs> and I thought, well, I got to drive to church to preach the next day. So I pulled into a gas station with $46.42 in my pocket. And I get the, the pump, the hose, and I put it into the gas tank. And I put it on. And you know how you put the auto switch off, auto off? They had those back then, all right? I put on the auto off so to just click off once it's full. I decided, well, I'm going to fill up the gas, and if there's $40 left, I'll continue my journey, and if there's not, I'll go home for another day. That's so courageous. Well, so I'm filling up the gas, and I hear this click, it goes off. I look at the register. You know what it said? $6.42. I had exactly $40 left. It crossed my mind to top off the gas, but you know, a heavy, a heavy, heavy conviction came on me that this is the Lord telling me I need to go pay my auntie that $40 restitution. So I took out the, the pump and I put it, and I, and I had this tremendous conviction, and at that moment, courage. Conviction plus courage leads to good action. Conviction plus courage leads to action. So I had the conviction. It, was, it had grown, and now I had the courage ready to do it. So I jumped in the car and drove as fast as I could to the store while I still had conviction and courage. Got before my aunt. I told her what I had done. I, I blamed Rain for it. <laughs> no, I told her what I had done, and I, and I asked her for forgiveness, and I gave her the $40 back. And she had tears in her eyes, and she accepted it. She said, I forgive you, and then she gave me back the $40. Say, use it for gas money. <laughs> wow, the Lord's humorous, you know. Not too long after that, my auntie confessed her faith in Jesus. And I don't know if that, what role that played, but I'm sure it played some sort of role. God wants us to take off the clothing and garments of thievery, wherever it may be, however big or small it could be, and put on honesty. He wants his people to be honest. So, take off lies and put on the truth. Take off anger and put on wholesome words. Take off thievery and put on honest labor. And finally, we take off destructive intentions and put on kindness and forgiveness, going from rags to riches. We take off the clothing of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamors, and slander, and put on the garments of kindness and tenderness and forgiveness. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says that. All, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ, God in Christ also has forgiven you. See, bitter and wrath and anger, clamor, slander, they are emotions and actions with the, that ha carry with it harmful intentions to someone else. 
Do they not? Anger is sin or becomes sin when it leads to that kind of behavior or intention. And Jesus wants to have us set that aside and put on kindness and forgiveness. Think in your own life. Is there someone in your life that you have bitterness toward because of betrayal? Is there someone in your life that you want to talk about because they talked about you? Is there somebody that you would rather not be in the same room with or at the same dinner table with because you really don't like them? Well, God wants you to put away those emotions, the wrath, the bitterness, and put on tender loving kindness, forgiving them for whatever transgression they committed against you. I think we all have that person or those people in our lives. And are you willing to discard the rags of what you feel and put on the garments of righteousness? In my first three years at Evergreen, a couple and one other tried to get me fired. They tried to oust me. What happened was the couple loved their children very much, loved one son, and the son had done some stuff, and I as the pastor needed to discipline him. So he wanted, he wanted to serve, and I wouldn't permit him to serve because I knew his history a little bit. And he needed to serve, but he needed to have a time away from doing stuff in the church. Well, they got really upset, but I couldn't explain to them why, because things were confidential. And sometimes we pastors were put in that predicament. People think, why are we doing this? But we can't explain why, because we know things that we can't tell other people about. So I had to hold it all in, and then it was... It was real messy. They called meetings, et cetera, et cetera, to try to get me ousted. And so at a quarterly business meeting, and we were Baptists, so we had congregational meetings to decide stuff. Well, he got up. I was sitting in the front row of the sanctuary, held about 100 people at the time. He got up and started to rant and rave about what an incompetent person I was as a pastor. He went through a litany of things. Now, I'm sitting in the front, knowing the history of it all, and knowing what I know, and I am steamed. I'm just really mad, like, I can't defend myself. So, I, on the verge, as he goes on, and remember, he's just coming from a place of brokenness and heartache. But as he goes on and on and on, I'm about ready to stand up and start to say things, that this is the reason why I did what I did. And then all of a sudden, I think the Holy Spirit came upon me. And I got this calmness about me. And I felt the Lord said to me, open the word and read. So I flipped open the word of God and I read the first verse that my eyes fell upon. Now this is not recommended to the church family. All right, Pastor Greg's probably cringing in the back. All right, and Pastor Gary, wherever he is, probably cringing. All right, but um, I did, I've done that three times in my pastoral tenure. Open up the scripture and just read whatever I saw first, mainly because I just had a need at the moment and I wanted the word of God fed into my soul. So I open up the scriptures, I look at the first verse that I, my eyes fall upon, and you know what verse it is? Ephesians 4 32. Be kind and tender hearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ, or just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's what I saw. And at that moment, the power of the word of God came upon me. You know how the Bible says God's word goes forth and does not return to him empty or vain? That's what happened. And I got this peace, and I started praying for the couple. 
And as I was praying for the couple, he, he went on so much that he discredited himself. You know, sometimes that happens. You talk so much that you talk yourself out of your position. So his wife yanked him down. It was quiet, and it was quiet thereafter, and the movement stopped. Part of it was because in that moment, the Lord gave me the ability and strength to take off the rags and put on the riches, to take off bitterness and, and slander and, and, and wrath and be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving others, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's the power of God's word. Later on, they went on a mission trip and they got into trouble in the mission. They had issues on the missions field. So they called me and they weren't coming to our church at the moment at that time. And they asked me if I would help them. So I went overseas and I helped them. So that's rendering grace in place of things that are unwholesome and, and pretty much unholy. Later on, when he passed away, they asked me to do his funeral. And the only reason why I could do those two things is because I was able to take off rags and put on riches. And that's what God wants with each one of us. We take off the rags and we put on the riches. And then we can walk the walk the way Jesus wants us to walk and live. And I mentioned earlier that uh, Andrew Carnegie was considered the quintessential essential story from America about rags to riches. He was born in 1835 in Scotland. When he arrived to America in 1848, um, he got a job as a 12-year-old earning $1.20 per week. But he was good and smart with his money, what little he made. And he invested in the steel industry. And he became the richest man in the world in the area of steel. He sold his holdings to J.P. Morgan for $480 million back then. It made him the richest man in the world. It was a story from rags to riches. But that would be the example God would give us. As wonderful as it is, and as encouraging as it might be. No, the greatest rags to riches story is actually a story of riches to rags, then rags to riches. And it's found in one verse. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, which says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. When was Jesus ever rich? I mean, he was born in a stable, as I recall. His dad was a carpenter, and they didn't make a whole lot of money back in the day. When he grew up, he became an itinerant preacher and miracle worker, and he hung out with a bunch of unemployed men. You wouldn't want your daughter marrying any of them. <laughs> Do you realize that? Sometimes we're so picky about who our daughter marries. We would have discarded Jesus. He was unemployed. He didn't have a house. He didn't have an education. Yet he was Jesus. I, I, that's beside the point. I shouldn't get into that. All right. <laughs> But the ultimate rags to riches story begins with riches. Jesus was rich when he was in heaven, but our streets are paved with gold. And then what does he do? He volitionally comes down and is born in a stable of all places. And then he lives a life 
and he goes to the cross to die so that we can be forgiven of our sins, so that we can go from rags, the poverty of sin, to riches, the promise of eternal life. Riches to rags, so that we can go from rags to riches. Are you living in rags today? Have you ever confessed Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Because if you do, you will go from rags to riches. God will forgive you of all your sins, and he promises you the gift of eternal life plus an abundant life here on earth, as I described in the message. So I'd like to take a moment here as we conclude the, the message to invite anyone who hasn't accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord to do just that. And the Bible promises, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. Confession of the lips, revealing the, the intent of your heart. So I'd like to, I'm gonna ask in just a moment if you'd like to accept Christ as your Savior this morning and then repeat a prayer after me, making it your own. God promises that he will answer this prayer. Let's pray together. If you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, if you repeat this prayer after me, making it your own, God will hear it and God will honor it. This is the prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe you are God's son, that you died on a cross, that you rose from the grave. I am a sinner. I want to go from rags to riches. So I invite you into my life as my Savior and Lord. Now close off that prayer with an amen. And with all heads bowed and eyes closed with the exception of our pastors, if you prayed that prayer with me this morning, praise the Lord and welcome to the kingdom. And would you please, for just a moment, raise your hand and raise it high so we can see it and accompany your journey into new life. So please, raise your hand if you prayed with me. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Now tell somebody, right? Tell somebody what you did and so they can rejoice with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your mercy. We love you. Thank you that you have given us the ability to go from rags to riches. In the name of Jesus, amen.